You're listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series, Lucky You. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and the interview subject that I've got coming up for you is Mr. Richie Cotson. The reason for the conversation is to promote Richie's three shows in Australia in August of 2017. I'll read out the three dates. On the 24th, he's playing in Brisbane. On the 25th, which is a Friday, he's playing in Sydney. And finally, Melbourne, you've got a show on Saturday the 26th. So let's have a listen to what Richie has to say. Here we go. Your show and world-famous guitar playing and, of course, singing to Australia in August. What can fans expect? Well, you know, we just finished a long run in the United States and it, it went so well. Um, we actually are doing a lot of material from the new record, which for me is kind of rare. Normally when I do a record, I'll pick two or three songs and bring them into the set, but we, uh, we're doing at least six, maybe seven. Um, and then of course we've got uh, some stuff from the past that we're doing. Um, you know, uh, another interesting element of the show, uh, I'm playing a lot more electric piano this time around. So cool. that's kind yeah. of fun for me to get off the guitar for songs here and there. And, We've also got an acoustic section where Dylan Wilson, our bass player, comes out with an upright bass, and, and Mike Bennett, the drummer, sits down in the cajon, and we do a few songs. It's much more intimate and uh, showcases the song a lot more. So I think it's going to be it's a good time for us to come there because I think we put together probably the most uh, diverse show that we've, we've ever had as a trio. Yeah, fantastic. And... Um... Yeah, look, on that note, I'm a musician, and you are a musician's musician, and I have no doubt that a fair slab of the audience, certainly in Australia, but no doubt anywhere you, you travel and perform, um, are also players, performers, or associated with music in some way. But how do you see yourself? Well, you know, it's hard to, to do the kind of analyzing, but I can tell you the things that I love most, and, and obviously I love being on stage and playing the songs and having that interaction with the audience, but the thing that really drives me, um, you know, it, it's the creative process. I mean, if it wasn't for that, I don't know that I'd have the same enthusiasm. What I, what I really love is the, the uh, I guess you call it the ability to, to hear something in my head, uh, an idea, and bring that into a situation where other people can literally hear exactly what I was hearing, you know? So, um, every, cool. all the components are, are great and valuable and I love live, but I think that the actual creative process of, of having an idea and bringing it to life in the form of a song is really, really why I do it. Okay, cool. And I first heard your guitar playing on Poison's native tongue way back in 1993. Now, my own feelings are it's a very underrated album and you contribute significantly through the songwriting. So, almost a quarter of a century down the road, how do you feel about that album and also your time in Poison? Well, you know, it was a very, very long time ago, obviously. Uh, I will say it was very important, I think, for me to have had that experience when I did. Uh, the thing that I agree with you. I, I love that record we made. I think that's a very special record considering yes. the times and what was happening yeah, exactly. in music. Yeah. And the thing that really uh, appealed to me um, was when, when I had my first meeting with Brett Michaels at his house, 
he expressed to me that they really wanted someone to come into the band that was a writer and that could contribute on that level. And so we started sharing song ideas and we really hit it off at that level. You know, he was from uh, Pennsylvania, as, as am I. And um, we had a lot of funny stories and inside jokes to share, you know, that are related to the region. Yeah, cool. And, uh, you know, there was an initial bonding there that I think really led to us collaborating well together and making a, a really great record. Um, so, you know, it was a, a, a kind of a culture shock because I had come from doing very cheap, low-budget records, uh, you know, um, not to say the records sounded that way. I think they were they were great for what they were, but um, we would go in the studio back then in the shrapnel days and, you know, have very limited time just because the budgets were, were you know, we weren't making pop records, so we had, uh, you know, the budgets that reflected the kind of music we were making, and they were very low budgets. Uh, once I got in Poison, suddenly we had all this, uh, you know, all this time. And so um, it was funny back then, uh, we probably could have made the record much faster, but, you know, I remember having ping pong tournaments in the studio, <laughs> and it was, it was a whole different vibe, but that, I think, translated into the record because we had such a... Uh, fun, open, relaxed atmosphere during that recording that I think you really hear that when you listen to the final record. Yeah, cool. And, and I recall having a poster of you back in the day um, in my study room. Um, do fans bring old merchandise or mementos for you to sign or be photographed alongside still from back in those days? Oh, yeah, of course. And it's always fun to look at that stuff, you know. Years ago, I used to get really disturbed by seeing those old pictures of me. And now, you know, being 47 years old, yeah, man, I wish I still looked like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's really, it's really, I guess I, I don't really sit around and think about it. But when I get engaged in these kinds of conversations, I can't help but think, you know, 1989, when my first record came out, and even the Poison record, it seems like another lifetime. And it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of funny to think that I'm doing it this long you know yeah it's, it's incredible to think you've been around for this long actually because I mean it's you know when I look at you I feel like as though um we're not of the same age I'm 39 and I'm realized you, you know you're five to ten years older than me but um mate yeah you, you've it feels like you've been around for forever and um the next question sort of harks back to that because I certainly recall the changes as a teenager in um, the way music was promoted. So back then the so-called grunge movement really took off at around the same time as Native Tongue. Were you aware of the tectonic shift in the rock and roll landscape and that the type of rock and roll that Poison was crafting was being pushed to the margins for this brooding melancholy stuff from Seattle or this so-called Seattle sound? Well, you know, not initially. I can remember um, being in uh, in L.A., having just moved here and driving in the car and hearing uh, Man in the Box for the first time, and I was just floored by that. Now, you know, when that music was coming out, it wasn't labeled. It was just rock, you know. It was uh, great, great rock music, and to me it kind of tied back into the kind of late 60s thing, you know, that was happening. Yeah. It, it was less processed the 80s rock bands kind of got stuck being produced in a way that everybody started sounding the same. So when I heard Alice in Chains the first time, it was really inspiring and fresh. And that was right around the time that I had joined Poison. 
Um, but then after that, it was really kind of crazy what happened. We did the Poison record and released that in 93. I yes. joined the band in 91. We released that record in 93. And our first single did extremely well, um, considering that there was a shift happening. But by the time we got around to the second single, it was almost like the gatekeepers of the music industry had decided we're not going to allow this stuff to come through anymore. And they kind of ruined things a bit in the sense that you had four or five really special bands that came out of that Seattle scene. And then suddenly the record company started finding bands that were, you know, poor imitations because everybody wanted to have, you know, uh, a Nirvana on their roster yes. or something of that nature. And so, you know, it's kind of sad because you had these great, great bands and then the record industry kind of shifted everything so that you could only sound that way um, if you wanted to be promoted. So then you had all these kind of charlatans running around, you know, pretending to be something they're not. And so then that ended up crashing. Uh, you know, the music didn't crash. It stood the test of time. But, but, you know, the other bands that came after them, you know, trying to emulate that certainly suffered. But that's an unfortunate thing about the music business. But thankfully, I think that element has gone by the wayside because now yes. artists really have much, much more control over what is happening. And I think it's a, it's a good thing in a way. It's a, it's a bad thing because there's obviously less income generated from record sales. But the upside, the silver lining, is that artists now really have much more control over what is released and how they're perceived. Yeah, and it's, it's really important to note you know that, that that point you make about the artists have far more control. Poison are back playing arenas, which you would never have thought even potentially ten years ago. But um, yeah, there you go. And uh, you know, for the record, back in the day, I remember having Native Tongue, um, Alice in Chains, Jar of Flies, and my record connection collection, um, the Motley Crue record for, from that period as well. And I remember thinking, it's it's just great music. That's really what it is. But to your point, yeah, I really felt that the narrative that the record companies and the media or pushing at the time was really, uh, as I say, pushing a lot of this great music to the margins, and there was no need for it. There was room enough for everybody. Um, but I'll, um, I'll ask... really, yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I just thought it was a shame, really. I just thought all these wonderful bands that were producing great, great music were, um, were pushed to the wayside. Warrant, even, um, and uh, you know, even even Skid Row. I remember some some. Um, shade being thrown in Skid Row's direction, which I thought was insane because they could have fit in with that. I mean, if Sebastian cut his hair a bit shorter or what have you, we would, they almost would have been a grunge band, um, especially with Slave to the Grind. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I digress. You um, talk about you again, mate. You have released 21 solo albums, I believe, at last count, and I think more out. You've released again more albums under other band names such as Mr. Big and Winery Dog. So you've probably got, if I'm not mistaken, well over 50 official releases out in the market, mate. Where does your staggering creativity come from? Well, you know, uh, it really is something that it, it's that way because of the the time. I mean, if you look at the fact that I put out my first record when I was 18 and th those were compositions that I wrote at 16 and 17 years old. Um, you know, I guess you could say I averaged a, a record a year 
um, you know, if you include everything. And for me, that seems normal. I mean, you know, I, I uh, like I said earlier, the thing that, that I love the most is the creative process. So, you know, I get ideas or songs. I document them. Sometimes I finish them. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes they sit in the studio, you know, incomplete for years, and I finish them years later. But the real key for me, I talk about it all the time, is a balance, you know, between uh, output, which is, you know, creating music. But then at some point, you need input. So for me, and I would imagine a lot of other folks, you need to take a break sometimes if you're a writer and experience some other things in life so that you have more input. And I think that's been a consistent thing with me. Um, something I, I, I always say, I, I don't really believe in writer's block for myself because when I don't have an idea, I'm happy to not write. I just do something else. And I know at some point I'm going to be inspired. And, and, you know, if I'm ever not, then I'm not. And it's, then that's where it ends. But, you know, thankfully there's been this kind of pattern of little streaks where I, I write uh, music and then I, I, I don't. Um, but I think the thing, when you talk about my output, I think it's a, it's a time thing. You know, I've been doing it consistently for a very, very long time. It's what I do. It's part of my, my makeup is, is to hear ideas from wherever they're coming from and develop them into songs that other people can hear. So it, it, to me, it's just kind of a normal, you know, behavior, I suppose you'd say. So talent can take people so far, but then discipline and hard work generally takes over. Are you one of those people who just can't wait to get out of bed each day to practice the guitar? Because when I, I've, I've watched plenty of your videos on YouTube or so, again, uh, I, I will bestow a compliment. Your, your, your guitar technique is staggering again. Where does the, the um, where did the, well, I was going to say where did the ability come from to play guitar like that, but I'm sort of alluding to that myself. But I suppose I'll reframe the question and I'll say, what does it take to play guitar like Richie Kotzen? Well, I don't know exactly. You know, I'll tell you this. Um, I'm not a practicer, you know, and I've never really been disciplined uh, in the sense of, of practice, practice. Um, I know there was a period of time in my early, uh, my early teens where I was obsessed with the guitar. I would fall asleep with it. I was always playing it. And so I guess that's a form of practicing. And I did study with an instructor to learn basic theory and that sort of thing. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it was a phase I went through in my teens of just really spending a lot of time with the instrument. And then something else happened shortly after that, where I started realizing that, you know, I have to do something with whatever facility that I've developed. And that's where I've I guess I figured out, you know, the bridge between uh, the the ability to play the instrument and then the internal creativity and emotional aspect of things. And, and somehow I think I might have connected that at some point. And then it just kind of feeds on itself. It's kind of like a big wheel that turns. Um, I will say as far as practice goes, in my adult years with, you know, the word practice, um, I never really sat down and practiced, what I would do is I would hear something in my head. I would hear a sequence of notes or a phrase. And if I couldn't play it, if I couldn't play something that I heard, which happened all the time, then I would sit down and figure out what I was hearing and how do I finger it on the instrument. And then I could go ahead and record it or perform it. Uh, another thing uh, of practice that, that does happen is after I make a record, 
I then have to go back and learn what I did in those various moments and figure out not only how to play it, I have to figure out how to sing and play it at the same time. So yes. those are the kind of elements of, yes. of practice that, that I implement. Is, uh, this is going to sound like a, a really simple uh, question, but how hard is it to play guitar like you do and sing the way you do at the same time? Well, for me, it's not because I'm playing stuff that I wrote. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if I had to play somebody up, it might be hard. But, you know, for me, uh, there's nothing hard about what I'm doing. Well, you know, I'll say one thing. Um, certain things aren't easy to do under the wrong circumstances. You know, um, you're on stage and you're trying to sing something and you can't hear yourself properly and you start, you know... Scream, not screaming, but, you know, yeah, over-pushing exactly your voice, pushing you know, voice, you yeah. hurt. But so, yeah, so much, there's so many outside variables that can get in the way. Um, but um, I, I wouldn't say there's anything, you know, difficult about what I'm doing, other than, like I said a minute ago, is trying to relearn what I did in the studio. Because you can do uh, anything you can imagine, you can find a way to do in the studio. And believe me, I exploit that. So what ends up happening for me is I got to figure out, okay, what did I do back then when I recorded that and how did I do it and how can I play that live? So that's really where the, where the issue comes. What advice have you got for anybody who would like to play the guitar or the bass and be able to sing at the same time? Well, I, I think uh, you have to, uh, as far as development as a musician, uh, which I think is is an important thing. I think playing with other people and playing live. For me, I know one thing is that when I was in my teens, I was in a full-time cover band. We played four nights a week. I was playing with older guys that were much more seasoned than me. And so that really was a big part of my development, is getting yes. in front of people, uh, playing with other people. I would think that would be important. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, I'm going to change track for a moment. Can you tell me about your relationship with Jason Becker? Well, Jason was, I was introduced to Jason by Mike Varney, who was the president of Shrapnel Records, and he signed me to my first record deal. And when we were making that first record, I was pretty new to the studio experience. I didn't really know very much other than how to play my songs. And so... Um, Mike was the uh, the executive producer of the record. He oversees everything, but we needed someone to be in the room with me uh, to kind of help me achieve my goals. And, and that was Jason, because despite the fact that we were very close in age, he had already done two or three records with Shrapnel, and he knew the process, and he had a great set of ears, and he was a great player, obviously. And so... Um, we became friends very quick. We spent a lot of time together. And, you know, back then, like I said earlier, the budgets were low. So we were at the studio and then we shared a hotel room. And so we were two teenagers being teenagers. But, you know, um, we uh, really walked me through the process of, of making that first record. And it was a valuable relationship. And it's still someone that's very close to my heart. Yeah, wonderful, mate. And... Look, I am a bass player, so I'm naturally curious about your collaborations with Stanley Clark. So what was it like working with one of the bass guitar's genuine superstars? 
Well, you know, it was interesting. They, um, Alan Holdsworth was in that project prior to me, and for whatever reason, uh, he left, and they needed a guitar player. Uh, they were managed by a manager who had previously worked with me. And so when they were looking, he had played something for Stanley over the phone. I think it was an instrumental record of mine. And uh, something struck Stanley's ear, and he wanted me to come down and audition. I remember coming down to the studio, and he put sheet music in front of me, and I started laughing. And he said, what are you laughing at? I said, well, this uh, might as well be a, a, a book written in French. I, I can't read this. So he sat down behind the piano and walked me through the changes, and, and I made my own notations on the song. And yep. we played for about two hours. And at the end, I said, well, I said, I, I'm pretty much feeling like a fish out of water here. So uh, I'm sure, you know, you're going to find the right guy for the gig. But it was an honor to, to spend these couple of hours with you guys. Yep. And then I, that night I went to a KISS concert. I came home and I had a voicemail at my house that I got the gig. So I was very surprised. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Maybe it was a bit of that, that trademark humility of yours that came across and he thought, I'm going to give this bloke a go. Yeah, well, maybe. I don't think humility would get the job done. I think probably what it was was the, I think somehow my instincts as a musician connected with whatever it was they wanted to do with that project. And I think he trusted that my ears and my facility on the instrument would bring to life whatever vision he had for the band. And so it worked out. And it was an education. I mean, I really, really opened my eyes to a lot of things harmonically working with those guys. Oh, sweet. Okay. All right. Well, I'm almost at the end of um, uh, the list of questions that I have for you. So I do have three questions that I ask all of my interview subjects, so I'd love for you to humor me here, Richie, and play along. And by the way, your answers can be as not safe for work as you like here, so here goes. Richie Cotson, choose three words to describe yourself. Oh, Lord. Um, oh, man. Uh, three words to describe myself. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess, uh, huh. well, uh, motivated. Um, uh, happy and um, uh, I, I don't know how to say it I guess I have thick skin I think it's something you need in this business I don't know if there's one word for that but uh, I would say that yep, yep. Uh, great comments and uh, the next uh, question is if you could go back to when you were 18 and give yourself some advice what do you think you'd say um, what would I say as far as advice well, um, I would say, you know, maybe put a little more trust in, in, in people um, that, uh, that give you advice, actually. You know, pay more attention. You know, there's been times in my life where, um, you know, I really thought I had it all figured out. And had I listened here or there to uh, a couple of things that may have been said to me, then maybe, uh, you know, things might have been better. But, you know, I don't really have regrets, so I feel like this answer is a bit false because I don't sit around and think, oh, if I would have done that. So I don't really have that kind of thing. You know, I don't have regrets. Uh, but, um, you know, sometimes for young people, and I'm probably speaking more, you know, I, I oftentimes, you know, I have a, a teenage daughter and I, 
I sometimes she talks to me about things and I give advice and then she doesn't take it. And then, you know, months later, she's like, oh, well, I should have blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? But <laughs> I think uh, for me in my life, I don't I don't really I don't look back and say, oh, I should have did this or did that, because I feel like I'm in the place that I should be at this point. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying there uh, when you reference your teenage daughter. I've got a, um, a sister-in-law who's in Canada, um, and she's in her early 20s, and sometimes I feel like I'm that grumpy old man in the corner telling her what and how to do things. Um, because I can, you know, like everybody, like every young person, she's sort of feeling her way through life, and probably in a job at the moment that's making her work far too hard than what a, what a 21 or a 22-year-old should and you sort of think, oh, God, should I be giving this advice or should I just sort of stand back and let her own life play out as it needs to play out? But there you go. Well, I think, you know, you, you, can, give, you can give advice and, and say things, and you might be right, you might be wrong, but I think there's something even more important uh, for young people to, to really have a trust in their instincts, and that's something I had as a teenager. And, you know, there's a lot of advice that I didn't take that thank God I didn't take because I'd still be yeah. back in Birdsboro, Pennsylvania. So I really think it's important. Um, you, know, you can say things here and there and, and let them figure it out for themselves because that's how people become individuals and carve yes. out their, their, their path in life. Yeah, cool. Okay, um, a final question is, what five guests, living or dead, would you invite to dinner? Well, um, oh, okay. Um, well, Salvador Dali... Um, uh, Prince, um, cool. uh, George Washington, <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and, um, maybe uh, Miles Davis would be interesting. Yeah, cool. Um, and um, and uh, I don't know who who would be uh, who else. Jack Nicholson. How about that? Yeah, gosh, yep. I knew you'd have a good one on the last one there. That's one I'd love to come along to, even if I'm cooking for everybody or being a waiter or something like that, um, or the wine boy yeah. or something. <laughs> you know. Hey, uh, just quickly, right I, know, I know we're going to wrap things up pretty quickly, but just um, what's your relationship like been with Australian audiences over the years? You know, I've never played in Australia, so um, this is my first tour there. So I'm, I'm really excited to... Uh, see you know see what it's about um i've had offers to come there but it they just never coincided with scheduling and you know uh, it's funny because people always send me messages and well why don't you play here why don't you play there and the reality is that I, I don't decide i have to i have to uh go where i'm asked to go and it has to kind of line up so thankfully this time everything lined up and uh, i'm just thrilled to have the opportunity Fantastic. Well, look, I'll definitely be in the uh, audience for your Brisbane show. Uh, there are plenty of people, mate, that can't wait for you to come down. And um, yeah, I want to wish you all the best, uh, not just on your Australian tour, but in general. You are a legend, if you don't mind me saying. So I have been listening to your music for a very long time. Um, long may you continue to create the wonderful music that you have. Thank you, and thanks for the interview. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Richie Cotson. Thanks so much for listening.